Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless.
my eyes are clearing. Just give me a second. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, you can worship God anywhere you are, but it ain't any better than it is right here. So, you may or may not know this about me. I lived a little over 25 years of my life in fear. I can honestly say without knowing and taking an inventory that I literally did not have one single day that I was not afraid. Afraid of what people would think, afraid of what would happen if I did what I was thinking about doing, afraid of what would happen if I opened my mouth, afraid of what would happen if I got out of bed and went to work again, afraid of what would happen if I got there three minutes late, afraid of what would happen if I uh, went five mile an hour over the speed limit, which I, I did, and I kind of like that fear, but the point is, I was afraid. And then something happened when I got saved. In that moment when I was forced to walk forward at East Little Baptist Church to, to tell people that I was getting saved, that I was giving my life to the Lord, I was deathly afraid. It may have been, I want to say to you, it was probably the most fear I had ever felt. Even though I felt progressively all the time fear, that was probably the most fear I'd ever felt to go forward. I'd done a lot of maneuvering to stay out from in front of people uh, over the years, and I'd gotten pretty good at it. Um, even making excuses. Uh, my mother would help me write notes for school and dodge the truant officer and everything. I mean, just a ton of efforts that we went through to try to avoid my having me in front of people. And that is exactly how God had me give my life to the Lord, was to come forward in front of people and to speak and to say the words. I'm here today to give my life to the Lord, and I'm ready to be baptized, ready to join this church, and ready to get busy. And uh, so I was deathly afraid in that moment. And that was a moment of transition for me. And then I had a number of instances after I got saved where before I would have been absolutely terrified. And sometimes there were things that I did and I was still terrified. It's not to say the fear totally went away, but there were a number of times in which I would have been terrified even to the point of not being able to act. And there was no fear. It was just gone. And so... Of course, at the time, I didn't realize what was happening. I just thought I was living my life and whatever. And then some years later, probably during prayer time or whatever, the Lord pointed out to me those instances and said, that's evidence of your being transformed. What I want to talk to you about today is the confidence of God's people. Now, before I do that, I want to say to you, this is not a traditional sermon on the confidence of God's people. I don't even know what a traditional sermon is. And some of you are saying right now, Pastor Dan doesn't even know what a traditional sermon looks like. And that's probably true. I don't, actually. But I, I don't know what a traditional sermon on the confidence of God's people would look like. This is not a topical sermon. Uh, which was almost, it was almost three topics, and then the sermon would have been about four hours long. And I thought, well, we're not, it's, clearly God is not leading me to a topical sermon. But there are three things we're going to look at in a very short passage of Scripture. And basically, they sum up to be both our confidence, and how we live out our confidence. And that's what they are. Okay? So it's a very short passage of Scripture, but then there's quite a bit. So after we read these few verses, you probably don't want to put your Bibles away because we're going to go a number of other places. And even though you may not read every place that we go, you may want to mark those places at least for future study. Okay? So we are going through the book of Joshua, so that doesn't surprise you. But I hope you'll get a little bit excited with me. And let's mark the moment as we turn to Joshua chapter 5. All right, thank you for those of you who have marked out this time and have done that with little activity with me. That is just to remind us that these are the verses that God can use in this moment right here today to transform our lives. Fear not, he intends to speak, 
Okay? So I'm going to read to you from Joshua chapter 5. I left off last week in verse 12. I'm beginning in verse 13. I'm going to break down and talk about a couple of things and maybe even a couple of ways that this sermon could have gone as I go through these verses. Uh, so don't let that catch you off guard. And then I even have at one point in time a passage of scripture that we'll have to look at uh, briefly, or at least I'll read to you to kind of show you something, uh, one of the, per- the ways that I didn't wind up going. Okay, So it's Joshua chapter 5, beginning 13, and this is what it says. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So notice a couple of things real quick on this verse. Where is he at? He's in the fields by Jericho. right? So he's not hanging out at Gilgal, which isn't too far away, but he's not hanging out there with all the army. He's in the fields by Jericho. And I may have had troops with him. They've been training. They've been scouting. We don't know for sure what he was doing. He may have been just out in the field praying. A lot of times you see it depicted in fiction or whatever. You see he was out praying. He looked up and there, boom, there was this man. Okay? Now, throughout Scripture to this point, and many times after, we see that formula, this man, or there was a man, right? And most of the time, actually, that you see that, it's an angel. And that's what the case is here. Angels or a representative of God. Um, And so we have a man who meets Jericho in the field. He is there directly opposite or right in the view of his big hurdle. Jericho must be taken in order to take the land. He's in the enemy's backyard. If they would manage to get a unit out there or a piece of their army out there, they could potentially take him. He is not in Gilgog at where the hundreds of thousands of Israelites are in camp. This man has his sword drawn. And that's peculiar. If you're bringing a message, you don't typically do it with your sword drawn. Right? If I am a sword bearer, and I'm going to walk up and talk to Perry, and I'm going to say, hey, Perry, i got a message for you from God. I'm going to walk up to him and say, hey, Perry, to you today. I, God really laid this on my heart, and I want to tell you about this. And the whole time, my sword is going to be in his teeth. But this man's sword is drawn in his hand. And there's a reason why the sword is drawn in his hand. It is not because he intends to use it, necessarily. But I want you to think just for a moment from your Bible knowledge or your experience, how we set out for God sometimes. And then along the way, we wind up not doing what God wants us to do. And we even begin to think to ourselves, God's just going to tolerate that. He's just going to let that go. God doesn't care. God's fine with it. Grace covers it. Jesus paid for it. That's from our perspective, right? From Joshua's perspective, it was God's fine with whatever we do now because God has chosen us. We have consecrated ourselves. We have circumcised ourselves. And of course, now we belong to God and God has promised he will bring us to the land. And if you have a promise of God to bring you to the land, are you in any danger? Is there any possibility that God is not going to succeed in completeness in doing what God has promised we'll do? No, there isn't. You're in no danger. But then there's a man suddenly there with his sword drawn. And I submit to you that the angel has his sword drawn to remind us, to remind Joshua that there is a part of God that you don't want to cross. There is an appropriate reverence for God. At the same time, he doesn't know at first that this is a man from God. And so he has come into the presence of a man who has his sword drawn, who may mean him ill will. And so there is a fear of men with their sword drawn 
That happens. I submit to you, it happens whether you want it to or not. If a guy walks up to you with a sharp, glistening sword, and he's approaching you, you're going to wonder what the heck is going on. That's in our day, right? So in our day, it could be a gun. Or you walk across the street, and there's a car coming, and all of a sudden, they step on the gas. And there's a little bit of a skip in your heartbeat, a little bit of a pay attention to that. This is, a, this is an important moment. i got to wake up here. Something bad could happen, right? That's the moment that Joshua was in. He doesn't know yet that this is an angel. He's thinking it's a man with his sword drawn. Now, he's not necessarily thinking he's from Jericho either. He doesn't really know, okay? But regardless of that, that sense of fear, that adrenaline, that little bit of heart-pumping movement would begin automatically as this man stands there with his sword drawn. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he asks him to identify his allegiance. Who is he with? Now notice he's not saying, are you from Jericho? And he's not saying, are you from the army of the Lord? Okay, So he's not asking which side are you on or who are you with or where are you enlisted or to what roles did you sign or anything like that. But he's asking him, are you for us or are you against us, basically? And Joshua could see Jericho and, Jericho and probably knew that no one was going in and out of Jericho. The first verse of chapter 6, which we won't read today, says that no one was going in and out of Jericho. It was sealed up. They were for fear of the, of the Lord's army. It was sealed up. Okay? So this guy was almost certainly a third party. Somebody that was not part of Joshua's army and not part of Jericho's army, but there he is standing in Joshua's presence with his sword drawn and Joshua's fear kicks up a little bit. A couple of things real quick out of this that we see. Realize that allegiances exist. You don't have to be signed up for the, the United States Army to help the United States Army. Just ask the Marines. Right? You don't have to be signed up for any of the armed forces to help the armed forces. Just ask the auxiliaries. So there are allegiances that exist, and that's what Joshua was asking about. With whom is your allegiance? Whose side are you on? Notice that he sees him, that fear kicks up, and right away he wastes no time in identifying this man's allegiance. He wants to know whose side he's on. Also notice that before he knows whose side he's on, he is approaching the man. He's already going to him. What if the guy says, he walks up to him, and Joshua doesn't draw his sword, he walks up to him, and the guy says, I'm on Jericho's side. And he's three feet away. Sword already drawn. That's doomed to Joshua. Of course, he could be trusting the Lord, you could say that, but we already know that God is requiring exercise or work, effort on behalf. He's not saying, I'm going to crush all the armies before you. I'm saying your armies are going to be victorious. And so just the same, that guy could hack him down and the Israelites could go on without Joshua. Okay, verse 14. The man says, no. And I thought that was weird because that's not the, that doesn't sound to me like the question that Joshua was answering. Are you on their side or on our side? No. Do you want pie or cake? No. I mean, no. I meant, do you want pie? No. Do you want cake? No. Okay, now I understand. You, know, you give two choices, you get the yes or the no, and most people kind of chuckle a little bit. That's funny, right? Well, that's what he got, was no. Rather, or instead of what you've asked me, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Which is interesting, because right up until that moment, I guess Joshua thought he was captain of the host of the Lord. 
Now, he knows his you know, scriptures, he knows his history or whatever. The angel doesn't say, I'm on your side. He doesn't say, I'm on Jericho's side. He says, I'm on God's side. Which is interesting. Because what does it say about Joshua? Well, if Joshua is on God's side, then the angel is on the same side as Joshua. See, we made a mistake over the years. There's a mistake that's been made in the church. We have asked people, and I'm not so, I'm not so sure New Heights does that, I think we do a pretty good job of this, but we've asked people to be allied with the church. We, we have people come in, and they'll profess to be a follower of Christ, and they'll say, uh, once you come and ally yourself, just join the church, become a church member. And that's good, it's good for a reason I'll show you later. But the lead question needs to be, ally yourself with God through Jesus Christ his son. There are lots of people in the world who will claim to be God's people. As Casey was sharing with us about the Muslim faith, they often claim to be God's people. And they will sometimes make an argument and say, well, it's all the same God, right? Although I will say that the, those who are really in the devout will not do that. They will question Christianity. In fact, they will look at Christianity as a pagan religion. And if they're militant, then they say that they should be wiped out. And if they're devout but not militant, then they say you should have nothing to do with it. Right? So what we lead, we should be leading with with whom is your allegiance? My allegiance is with God. And the church has made the mistake of, in fact, there are churches all over the US right now with thousands of members who have people who have joined the church and their allegiance is with the church and they're in the church, but they don't know God. They have not accepted Christ. They have not accepted God through Jesus Christ, which is the only way to do it. And so that's how you wind up with churches with thousands of people, with people in them or not saying. Now, I think maybe you could wind up with a hundred churches coming together in one building, and they might, that might be thousands of people then. But the real question is, have you allied yourself with God? And when he says, no, as the leader of the host of the Lord, I now come, if Joshua has not allied himself with God, then what would be his response? What does he need to be worried about? This angel has his sword drawn. He says he's on God's side. But I know in my heart of hearts that I'm not really on God's side. And that sense of fear, that little bit of adrenaline that was kicking up there, now it's something a little bit more, right? And that's where people come sometimes. It's where I came. In fact, I've shared this with you before. When I needed to go forward and face the fear of going forward in front of Eastwood about the church, I denied it two Sundays. The first one, I made a sort of a half excuse. The second one, I made the same excuse again. But the third Sunday, I went because I was definitely afraid of something more than I was afraid of going forward. And even though I was terrified, and I said as a non-believer, I would never go forward, I would never publicly speak out on behalf of God, I was terrified that God would say, okay, just don't come. Okay, that's fine. I invited you three times. You don't want to come. It's fine. Just go on and do it yourself then. Live your own self. And then, and I would stand before him eventually and answer for my life. And so, if you will, a greater fear overcame that. what now I realize was a lesser fear of being in front of people. And so he said, as the leader of, as the captain of the host, I now come, signifying his allegiance is with God, not with Joshua or the Israelites, but with God. I think sometimes we need to be clear about our allegiances. Notice also in the next verse, 
Joshua, or at the end of that verse says, I'm sorry, in, in B, he basically say that verse, and it says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the whole sermon could have been wrapped up in that question right there, couldn't it? What has my Lord to say? Meaning, I realize you come on behalf of God. What does God have to say to me? What do you have to say to me? Right? And then he says, his servant. He is making himself. He bows down and making him, makes himself a servant. Now, if you read in your Bible, if you have the New American Standard Version, I think the King James is the same way, you'll notice there that the word Lord is not capitalized. And that's because most people who study it don't think he was referring to God. He is submitting himself to the angel that is before him as if the angel were Lord. Now, don't get ahead of yourself. This is almost certainly not Jesus, though some people would make that argument that this is Jesus, right, appeared to Joshua. Um, but what he does is he becomes subservient to the representation of God. And you see that. The burning bush represented God. Was God speaking to the bush? It wasn't literally God in the bush, right? We understand it's an epiphany. It's a moment in time where God showed himself in a special way. The column of fire leading the Israelites. That wasn't actually God. It was God leading them with the column of fire. You understand that, right? So this angel is not God, almost certainly not God. Unless, of course, it is Jesus, which would be another thing altogether. And we won't know that until we get to heaven. But the bottom line is it's almost certainly not God. But he is a representative of God. And Joshua bows down signifying his allegiance with God. He falls on his face, and the VeggieTales thing, he falls on his face, and then he says it like this, what is my Lord, because his face is buried in the ground, right? But here he is, before this angel, saying, what is the message? What do you have to say to me? He, the angel clarified his allegiance. Joshua now clarifies his allegiance. And he declares himself a servant to the angel, or more likely, the God that he represents. All right, and then 15, and this is the last verse of this section. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So he speaks back to Joshua now, and he says, Remove your sandals. Take the sandals off your feet. Does that seem a familiar formula to you? That's what happened with Moses at his commission, right? By the way, there are two places, exactly two places in the Bible where that phrase, remove your sandals from your feet, are used. One is at the commissioning of Moses, and the other is the commissioning of Joshua. Now, you know that Joshua is the replacement Moses, basically. Moses screwed up, Joshua basically is a replacement. When Jesus is speaking, for example, uh, in a parable way into the New Testament, he, me, he says, um, if they won't listen to Moses, no, nor would they listen if a man came back from the dead. What is he referring to when he says, if they won't listen to Moses? Literally Moses? Or is Moses representing something? Okay, what is Moses representing? What did Moses give them? That was his law. The law, right? Moses gave them a lot of commandments, but the, the most famous are the ten, but it's the law, right? So Moses represents the law. At his commission, which, take your sandals off your feet, this place is holy. Joshua, whom Moses renamed, was, Josh, was uh, Hosea, son of Nun, right? Moses renamed him Joshua, son of Nun. And Joshua, translated through the Greek into the English, is what? 
Jesus. Right? It means Yahweh saves. Joshua represents not law, but grace. Okay? So as God commissioned law, so too he commissioned grace. So there's a bunch of theologians out there, and I could have gone this way, who would take this text, or at least this part of this text, and they would talk about how by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's Romans 3.20, right? Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law is still there to be a witness, but the righteousness of God is delivered not by the law and living perfectly the law, but by the grace of God. Okay? How is it that Joshua is in charge of the Israelites? By the grace of God. How is it that after everything that happened, the Israelites are in the promised land? By the grace of God. How is it that God will fulfill the promises that he has made? By the grace of God. Even though Joshua... Now, the reason this analogy breaks down is because even though they're in the promised land, are they really in the promised land? They're in the promised land. They're in Canaan. They're just outside Jericho. But are they really in the promised land? Because in about 75 years, where will they be? Buried. Spirit either ascended or descended. Right? So are they really in the promised land? No. They're like in the earthly promised land that symbolizes the promised land that God has really prepared. So if you want to draw the connection, Moses can't lead you to the promised land, but Joshua can. And you want to say Moses connects with the law and Joshua connects with the grace, then be careful to realize that while Joshua connects with the grace and God's people are now God's people and they're in the promised land, that it's all an object lesson, if you will, and to represent how God will take us home. I want to step on somebody's toes, a theologian, a bibliologist. We'll look that up later. I don't even know what that means. I just made it up. This cannot take you to heaven. Not if you should live it perfectly from here on out. However, what's pictured in here, what's explained is that Jesus, and that's what larger the New Testament about, can take you to heaven. So if you will say this, Joshua was the replacement Moses. Jesus is the replacement Joshua. Jesus is our Joshua. And our Moses points us to our Joshua. You follow? Now that being said, he says to him, the place where you stand is a holy place. Take off your sandals. I think that's interesting. What makes that little piece of ground outside Jericho holy? It's not a temple. They have not sacrificed there. No bowls were cut or burned there. What makes that place holy? Is it, say it? Okay, yeah. And what did God do that he then declares it? He sent his angel to speak with Joshua there. And Joshua recognizes the angel as God's representative. And so as we move into the points here in a second, I want you to think about how God sent an angel, and just because an angel appeared to Joshua there and delivers God's message, that place becomes holy. So holy that he is commanded to take off his shoes, which would be like us, I mean, it's lightening it significantly, but kind of be like, take off your hat. Show some respect, right? For them, it was the sandals. But it's much more powerful than that, than just take off your hat, because a lot of us don't really care about hats. 
but everybody cares about sandals or did in that day, right? Okay, so now I want to show you a couple things. Before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of an illustration. We were playing dodgeball. You boys like dodgeball, right? Even Tommy likes dodgeball. I don't like dodgeball. I don't know. I like playing dodgeball. We have a young man who comes here and plays dodgeball, and he's a dodger. He's really, really good at dodging. You think that nobody could miss, you know, five feet away or whatever. He's really good at dodging. And uh, Arden got the ball. He cornered him at the end of the room, and he was the last one. They're playing um, Chinese. I mean, I'm the last one. I one of Anyway, he was a big hurdle to win it. And Arden goes up to him, and he's going to hit him with the ball, and he goes and throw it like this. And he goes, hmm, like that. But Arden didn't throw the ball. And so then, he's, he's, now he comes down over here, and Arden pumps again. And he goes, ugh! And he, but Arden didn't throw the ball. And he did it like five times. The last time, he was on his toes, and he jumped, I swear, like three feet in the air on his toes, and turned sideways. And he looked like he was doing like a rush, Russian Krishna dance or something. <laughs> but he was like three feet up in the air. And Arden threw him the ball. At that point, he was totally exhausted, fell down on the ground, and Arden threw him the ball. Okay? And I'm going, oh, man, where was my camera? That was so awesome. I, you know, because it didn't look like he was playing dodgeball. It just looked like he was all over the place, spazzing out, trying not to get hit. Okay? He's a really good dodger. Nobody threw the ball. And then he dodged so much because he was afraid of getting hit, he wound up on the floor. Joshua has been told at this point in time to be bold and courageous. He's out in the field near Jericho and a man shows up and maybe he walks up and maybe he appears with his sword drawn and Joshua's response is, he walks up to the man and asks him, whose side are you on anyway? Now, if the man says God's side, which he did, or he says the Israelite side, either way, then the fear can pretty much go away. At least, you got to be a little cautious because you can be lying, but basically, you can figure it out, right? You feel a little bit more comfortable. I submit to you that far too often... We are living our lives as if we are playing dodgeball and trying not to let anything bad happen. We are anxious and worried about the outcome of this new turn of events. Evidence shows us that this could go poorly, and naturally, you're human, it's built into you, a little bit of fear kicks up to say to you, hey, pay attention. It's like spidey sense, except we all have it. And it doesn't go off before it goes off as you begin to see things develop and you're smart enough to go, hey, I think something's about to happen. This could go poorly. I'm not happy. I'm afraid. And you start to feel fear. I used to work at Pizza Hut. Uh, I was a manager there. And toward the end of my time there, uh, they got a new vice president. Uh, it's two steps above me. And that person came in our building and caught me one day providing good customer service. And uh, so when you're caught providing good customer service, you think you're expecting, you know, a little bit of a praise or whatever. Instead, uh, a memo had come out about a week before that we were not allowed to honor any customer requests as far as the 
buffet for that, you know, buffet, and you're not allowed to make a certain one. We've made a decent that burger we asked for it. It was a popular thing anyway. We've made one for it out there, and she taught us with it out there, and she was the one getting my water about a week ago. She hauled me in the walk-in cooler <laughs> and proceeded to yell at me and cuss me out for that travesty that I had done that. And as I stood there, I was not afraid. I knew that she could fire me in an instant. Ohio's an at-will state. She says, doing a pretty good job, but I had instructed my employees to disobey that, mem that memo. Because my former regional manager, who was a good friend of mine and had trained me and like that, uh, had always told us the customers on first got to do it. And it cost a fortune. You know, don't make it so that it costs a hundred bucks so that you can get a fifty more customers, you know, before you can make a profit back, but otherwise just do it. So that's what I did. And I told them, no, just ignore the memo, it'll go away in time, and we're gonna serve it back. She's yelling at me and she says, eventually I'm standing there and she says, You know what your problem is? Says, you're not afraid of me. And the funny thing is, until she said that I didn't realize she was um, that, that was true, that I wasn't afraid of her. And she said that, and right away I'm having a spiritual thing. I'm going, cool, I'm not afraid. This is really weird. Why am I not afraid? And I've got in my mind. But at the same time, she said, you're not afraid. And I said, well, you know what? That's actually true. I fear, I don't, I don't fear any man, just God. And I said it before I even thought about it. And that's a pretty bold statement for me. Uh, it was a very bold statement then, because I was only a Christian a couple of years. I ask you, which way do you think better represents? And I'm not saying I'm a... I'm better than anybody else. Which, which of those two illustrations, bouncing all around trying to make sure that things don't go poorly because you're afraid of the outcome, or realizing only after the fact that you're not afraid? Which one of those lines up more with what the Bible teaches us about fear and living for God? I say to you, fear not, be bold and courageous, go forth. Luke chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 says this, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. I think we had a little bit of a quote of that from somewhere else in the inspirational moment today. You don't have anything to be afraid of. When I was a Christian about eight years, the Lord said this in my prayer time. He said, as long as you're doing what I want you to do, no one can touch you. No one can hurt you. No one can take from you. You cannot suffer in any way. And I'm going like, well, I know about persecution. The Bible talks about persecution. And I'm trying to figure out how can that actually be true? Because what I see is when I live for the Lord, I get persecuted. When I step out and I speak out and I be out, then the, I get persecuted. I'm going like, how can that actually be? If I live for the Lord, nothing bad can happen. And then I began to realize that persecution is not in and of itself a bad thing. Luke chapter 1, and this comes from the, the sort of song where uh, Zechariah is talking about the birth of John the Baptist. And so he knows that the Messiah is coming, and he knows that John is going to kind of proclaim the Messiah. And he says, The oath which he, that's capitalized because that's talking about God, swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Romans 13, 7 and 8 says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom it is due, custom to whom, custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. If you're on God's side, you place those things where they belong. Don't owe anybody anything. 
But if you're not on God's side, then you ought to fear God and check your lineup. If you've decided not to do what you know God wants you to do, you should be afraid all the time. But if you're not, then you don't need to be afraid. Just do what God wants you to do and go forward. And there's nothing to fear because God has everything under control. You know that in the Old Testament it says fear the Lord like a hundred times. And the New Testament, it says perfect love casts out all fears. We have not been given the spirit of fear. Now, if you're not lining up with the Lord, I'm not excusing it. I think I would recommend it. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Who's that, by the way? The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. That's Jesus. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, it says in parentheses. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So in other words, things are going to go wrong, and even that we should not fear. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. You could be cast into prison for living for Jesus, and you should not fear that. This is so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, your body will die, but it won't cause you any real problem. As long as we are afraid to die... We have a problem. But he says, don't be afraid to die when you die. For the Lord, it's actually a good thing. You know, Jesus died to get the job done. We're Christians, means little Christ, so like Jesus, we die to get the job done. That's what we do. But when you're fearful so that you're working so hard all the time trying to dodge the bad things of life, rather than piling yourself into doing what God would have you to do, being bold and courageous and going forward in the Lord, then you do just like he did and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce until you have nothing, you fall down on the ground, and then the enemy takes you out just like that. It says be watchful and be sober because there is an enemy prowling around like a, lore, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know what's funny about a roaring lion? A roaring lion can't bite you while he's roaring. The, that verse is not about being worried about falling into the hands of Satan. It's about living for the Lord and doing what you're supposed to be doing. And the, let him roar. Have at it. Roar all you want. I'm not afraid of you. But as soon as you get afraid of him and you start dodging him because he's roaring, you know what happens to a pack of animals? A lion will go alongside a pack of animals and then they roar. And then all the animals run. And then the lion picks off the weak one, or the straggler, or the outside edge. Now they'll also pounce, and more, females pounce more than males. He's like a roaring lion. He's just trying to cause you to be afraid so that he can get at you. We have to get used to a strange absence of fear, and we need to begin to live out that strange absence of fear. We should realize that to fear is to question the outcome that God has set forth for us. Do you realize that the day that God has ordained that you may die for him, 
You could wake up that day and go, oh no, I'm not going to die today. I'm going to, I'm going to run. I'm going to hide. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. I'm not going to speak up. I'll be quiet. I'll, I'll duck behind this pillar. I'll do anything I can to keep from dying today. And then you don't die. But that was the day that God wanted you to die for him. And where's your allegiance again? And he could have translated you. You had your opportunity to die and go immediately to heaven. Do not pass jail. <laughs> the reverse of what it says in Monopoly. Right? You could have died and gone immediately to heaven. But instead of doing that, you stay and bounce and dodge and run away. And never, maybe never, make it in. Instead, I think what we need to do, because you say, well, I'm afraid and God may be that way. And so there's a part of me that has should have fear, I think we need to let fear operate as a sense. Not as a control of our senses or our decision-making process, but as a sense. You sense when things could go wrong, and then God says, don't do that. You know, Don't touch that fire, that's dumb, you idiot. And you don't touch it, because that's dumb, it'll burn you. Right. So we learn to operate it as a sense, rather than as a control. I see things I don't like, I see things that could hurt me, and I don't jump in front of moving vehicles. And I'm not saying you should dismiss that and go jumping in front of all the moving vehicles in case God wants to take you to heaven today. That's dumb. What I am saying is, if God wants you to jump in front of a moving vehicle and he makes that completely clear, then you do it. Ironically, the vehicle may swerve and miss you. But if you stay on the side of the road, the vehicle may swerve and miss the person in the middle of the road and hit you. So if God wants you to run out there and try to save that person, you could get missed and you could still be here serving God. You don't know. God is in charge. He owns the day. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son to die for us, and we know that one. 1 John 2.3 says, We are to work as He worked. 1 John 3.16, which is kind of a neat poetic, you probably remember that one, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, says that we are to lay our lives down for the brethren as He laid His life down for us. If you're afraid, I submit to you that that is one of the greatest barriers of you being able to do exactly what it says will give you confidence in the Lord, being willing to lay your life down for the brethren. So fear not, be bold and courageous and go forth. Sun Tzu says it this way, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. Pretty smart, huh? You know Jesus? Going to heaven one day? He in charge of your life? Holy Spirit's in you? You've already won. Now go to war. Don't know Jesus? Not living for the Lord? I'd be afraid. I wouldn't go to war. Because you've not won. It just makes sense. Opportunities multiply. This also Sun Tzu. Opportunities multiply as they are seized. The more you do for the Lord, the more you can do for the Lord. The more the opportunities, the more the door opens. First time you tell somebody about Jesus, I was standing on a porch one night. I'm going to make this one really short. This is, just came to me just now. I was standing on a porch one night until like 10 o'clock and it got dark and the lights went out. And, and we, I've been there for two and a half hours sharing Christ with this guy. Finally, he accepted, prayed to accept the Lord. And, and we're ready to go. And we're finally like, oh, thank God that's done. Now I can go home. And I don't know, maybe I trapped him on his porch that whole time. And that's the only reason he accepted the Lord. I don't know. But the bottom line was that we're there and he prayed to accept Christ. And I said, now who really needs to know about this? And he said, my grandmother, she's been praying for me for years to come to Christ. And I said, go tell your grandmother. 
And I said, and then don't stop there. Tell everybody you possibly can. When people accept Christ, they want to tell others about Christ. We can't win the whole world to Christ, but we can win people who can win people who can win people and more and more people go to heaven and that's what the church is all about. And then we have people that don't tell anybody about Christ. And I, I can only assume part of that, part of, a good reason for that might be that they're afraid. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. Also Sun Tzu. Know your enemy and know yourself and you can fight a hundred battles without disaster. Luke chapter 12, verse 7 9 says, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows everything you're thinking, everything you would be afraid of. He can direct you and guide you with your fear, but your fear has to operate as a sense, not as a control. Okay. There's a second thing you got to see in here, and that is about allegiances. It's about allegiances. Joshua asked the man, so whose side are you on anyway? And right away the man declared his allegiance, and then Joshua declared his allegiance. And I submit to you that we probably ought to substitute these, this question for hi. Say hi to people. Have a nice day to people. We, we would be better off to say, whose side are you on anyway? And obviously that would be kind of rough socially. You might say some people away, you might offend some people. Then again, you might lose. What do you mean by that question? I mean, do you know God? Have you met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you living for the Lord? Yes, I am. What church do you go to? Oh, I don't go to church. Who's that on anyway? Oh, yeah, I go to church, but you know, I only go once in a while. Do you serve there? Do you do anything? Or, you know, are, you, are you serving the Lord anyway? Uh, no, not really. I can't say I am. Who's that on anyway? Pretty good question when you think about it. But it's a little offensive. Since we need to start declaring our allegiance, we need to start need to ask people about their allegiance. Now, I would recommend you do it as lovingly as you possibly can, but I would recommend you do it. Even new heights. Even this church in which God speaks to us, works in us, our percentages are atrociously low with the number of people we're asking, whose side are you on anyway? So, Without fear, we could go forward and do what, what we just said we could do, right? We could talk about our allegiance. We could choose a side. We could serve people who are on the same team without fear that they will take from us too much, that they will bleed us dry. We could serve, we could, and you know what? If you were serving a brother the moment you died, you'd be serving God and then straight to heaven. Straight to heaven. This is the confidence that we have. One more thing. And then I'm going to wrap it all together neatly, I think, in a conclusion. I'll try to. Okay? Notice there are holy places in which we encounter God. Show a little respect. Now be careful. When I heard the gospel over a hundred times, the Pluto Baptist Church never failed with the gospel in sermon. I heard the gospel over a hundred times. And I was going back there to continue to hear I woke up in the morning and just knew I would be in church on Sunday, even though I had not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When I heard the gospel over a hundred times, I began to think to myself, that place where I hear God is a place I need to be. And I began to become like respectful, reverent a little bit. Adam and Eve walked in the coolness of the Garden of Eden with God. And then they fell in part, at least because they did not show God the respect that he deserved in the place that God gave them.
If taking off your shoes is showing the respect to God, then take off your shoes wherever you have met him. And I put the take off your shoes in quotes because some of you, I don't really want you to take off your shoes. I'm just being figurative when I say that, okay? All right. So, but I mean, show some respect, right? Where you have met God, show some respect. But, but let's be clear. We've met God in the church building. We could be talking about that. But we meet God amongst his people. Where there are other people who love the Lord, we meet God, right? Have you ever been sitting at your dinner table or talking to somebody on the phone and they brought up a verse or they said something and you went and the Holy Spirit said, hey, I need to listen to that. And you met God in that moment. So we meet God among his people. And the church is his people. It's not the building, right? So not just in the building should we be respectful because we meet God here, but amongst God's people, we should be respectful because we meet God amongst his people. You meet God in the Bible. When you read your Bible, God speaks to you. At least I hope he does. If he doesn't, I would, re- I would recommend that you turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I need to hear you when I read my Bible. And I think there might be something standing in between me and you. And whatever that is, I repent of it. I don't want nothing to do with it. And I just want to live for you and show me when I read my Bible something that I need to know. So if you meet God when you read your Bible, then you ought to show respect when you read your Bible. You meet God in your prayer times. Somebody shared uh, a couple weeks back that they get on their knees a lot when they pray because they need to show that respect to God. I'm saying to you, if you meet God in your prayer times, then you need to show respect to God. Ariana, we, we now do this thing at my house, which is was something that God led us to, and I'm really enjoying it. I bought this little cone while we were out of town in London, and it says on the cone, stop and pray. It's like a traffic cone, and it says stop and pray. So we put the cone throughout the house. And by the way, if you're ever at my house, I invite you to play this game with us. It's going on 24-7 anytime anyone's awake. Someone sees the cone, they pick up the cone, and they stop and pray. And then they put the cone somewhere else. And then when someone sees them in that pick, they pick up the cone, and they stop and pray, and they put it somewhere else. And so Sherry and I, Ariana, uh, Aaron and Arden are all playing. I, I think Amalia played this last week, and at least you're, you're there often. You can play anyone in my house, you see the cone, you stop and pray, and then you put the cone somewhere else. Then when somebody else sees it, they stop and pray, and they put the cone somewhere else. Ariana found the cone. It was on the entertainment center under the TV. She was going to stop and pray. Before she picked it up, she went in the hallway. She sat down in the hallway with her legs crossed and folded her hands. And she said to me, Daddy, I'm just going to pray in my head. Show some respect. The tool of prayer is the most powerful connection to God that you have. If you pray it when things go wrong, if you pray it just in the flight of the moment, you pray it once in a while. You memorize the Lord's Prayer and that's all you ever pray, or parts of it because you didn't bother to memorize and that's all you ever pray. Or all you ever pray is God help us or God bless this food. You are missing out on a place of connection with God. And you ought to have a little respect. Because God has given you a door to his heart. And you can do it in your head. But you ought to show a little respect. So now we're up to the church building. Among his people. In your Bible. In your prayer times. And boy would we be remiss if we miss this one. In your heart. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in a believer, and when in your heart you meet God. Your mind may be screwed up and going the wrong way, and you need to submit it to your heart. But if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you got a new heart wherein which God lives now. God is not, does not live in temples built with hands, but in the hearts of men who submit themselves to Him and women. Mankind. And so, in your heart. So, you better take care of your heart. 
You better keep your heart clean. You better neaten it up a little bit. You better let it be in charge. You need to respect your heart. When listening to the one who has facilitated that experience before. So let's say if you know, and I'm not saying anything about me, but if you know you come here and you hear the preaching and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, God speaks to you during the preaching, then you need to show a little respect. That's why the adults ask you to put your phone away, boys. Because it shows a little respect. Not to me. I don't care if you show respect to me. If you don't show respect to me over a long period of time, I'll figure out whose side you're on and I won't have anything to do with you. I'll be done with you. I'll be like, whatever. I'm not worried about you. I tried. I tried to reach. I talked to you. I talked about Jesus. I talked to you about it. I tried. I'm, now, God will bring you around when he wants to come around. I, I got more people. There are more people in my life that I've done that with and I've given them over to the Lord than there are in this room right now. Because I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and they've been disrespectful and they don't want to hear it. And if they don't want to hear it, I'm not going to keep talking at them. That's almost mean. That's like, we turn the TV down and instead you turn it up. Is that not disrespectful? I'm not being disrespectful to them. If they're disrespectful to me, so I'm like, okay, if you want to come back, I'll be here. I'm ready. I'm not being mean about it, but I let them go. Bottom line is, wherever you have met God before, including in the sermon, including, by the way, I meet God in worship. You want to know why I try myself to respect worship so much and I and I get it, people don't raise their hand, but I raise my hand. People don't stand up, but I stand up. People don't yell, Amen, praise the Lord, and hallelujah, but I do that, right? We had a six months emphasis on worship, and I've tried to draw those things into my worship as much as I can because they're how God told us to worship. We need to respect worship because I meet God in worship. That's what I, re- that I respect worship. Then listening to the one who's facilitated that experience before, whether it's a worship person or a speaker in worship or a pastor who's preaching or whatever, you need to respect that time because God can speak to you again and he did. In fact, I submit to you he makes that time holy. God's presence makes things holy and we know this instinctively. You feel it and how do you feel it? You feel it with your fear muscle, with your fear sense. You start to realize I'm disrespecting something that could be about me, for me, sent to me by God. And if you can't feel that, then either A, you don't need to be there Or B, you're not listening. What we actually need is more presence of God and more holiness, and we get it by, quotes here, taking off our shoes. Show some respect. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking, he says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he is served by human hands, but not as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's what God does. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. So now where should you be respectful to God? Well, if in him you live and move and exist, that's everywhere. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his children. I'm sorry, poets have said. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, he said because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It's time to show God the respect he deserves. And Paul says it this way. It's time to show God the respect he deserves or else. He's done scoffing at your little games. He's done with your playing around. He's done with your manipulating and saying, well, nobody knows what I'm doing behind closed doors. He's done with your sneaking thoughts about things you shouldn't be thinking about. And you go, well, I'm not actually doing it. I'm just thinking about it. He's done with your fearful, apprehensive, tiring yourself out by dodging the outcome. He said, no, you belong to me. Now do what I tell you to do. Because that's when you show who you belong to. Honor him with your words and your choices. The Testament says it this way. You love me, you'll follow my commands. Okay, so the conclusion of all of this. The three things I showed you. No fear. No fear to do what God would have you to do. Fear is a sense, not a control. If you start to feel fear, you got to go, okay, wait a minute. Am I feeling fear here because I'm in danger? I'm doing what's wrong and I should be doing what's right. Or am I walking with the Lord and now my physical body is in danger, but I'm walking with the Lord so I don't have to worry about that. I have a car that has a screwed up computer. The check engine light has been on and the, and the uh, out of gas gauge is on most of the time for about three years. I don't worry about it. I track it on the odometer. I know when I'm out of gas. Gas gauge tells me out of gas. I don't feel any fear. Took Miss Nikki out to drive. Gas gauge went, and she went, what happened? <laughs> what just happened? Because that's what it does. It says full, and then all of a sudden it's empty. The check engine light's been on all that time. Who knows? There could be something seriously wrong with the engine. The car might be almost dead, but I'm not worried about it. Because I know the check engine light was coming on when there wasn't a problem. That sense doesn't work for me. I can't just be afraid of when something's going to happen to my body or when something's going to happen to my finances, something's going to turn out a way I don't want. That will cause you to bounce all around like a, like a, you're in a Toyota commercial, one after another after another, and wind up dead, tired, on the floor, and the enemy takes you out quite easily, in fact. So no fear. That isn't just a sense. And then declare your allegiance and look for other people to declare their allegiance. Now, what that looks like in your life is kind of up to you. You need to figure it out. But you need to be declaring your allegiance over and over and over again. And I would recommend it to be done verbally. Say it out loud. I love Jesus. I'm living for Jesus. I love God. I'm living for Jesus. Jesus told me to do this. Jesus told me to do that. I read in the Bible I'm supposed to do this. Now I do that. Say it out loud and do it over and over and over again because the enemy hates it. Declare your allegiance and look for other people to do the same. That's what evangelism is all about. The good news is there is now remission of sins through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. You can have your sins forgiven. Tell everybody about that. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Matthew 16, 18b says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the church. That's us. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. It means we can save those who will be saved through the power of the gospel, and we can live not to go to hell, but to go to heaven. And Joshua 5 says, Take off your shoes for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Show some respect in the places that belong to him, the places that he's met you before. In Acts chapter 4, it says, If we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man, this is Peter speaking before the Sanhedrin, as to how this man has been made well, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, now is that bold? They crucified Jesus, and now he stands before him and says, that Jesus, it was done because of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. It's the one that we all have to line up with. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. That would be us, by the way. Uneducated, untrained men. It doesn't, we're, that's what we are. It doesn't matter if somebody has a degree or not. By comparison, we are uneducated, untrained men and women. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. No fear. Declare your allegiance. And when people get saved and join you in it, when miracles happen, as they do, we have miracles in this room. I could ask, raise your hand if you could tell me about a miracle in your own life. And most of the people in this room would raise it. I'm not talking about salvation, but even after that, everyone has a miracle. that they, We've seen it. It's still happening. Incredible healings. We prayed and this happened. Incredible changes that God has done. So we could talk about the miracles. And when we do that, we proclaim our allegiance and people see what's happening amongst us. They will know that we have been with Jesus. But if you're living your life in fear, you need to have some confidence and identify yourself and be bold and show God the respect he deserves and has rightly earned, especially everywhere that you have encountered him, especially in your heart, amongst other believers, in the church building, when with the church people, wherever you have encountered God, and if you have not encountered him, what are you waiting for? Because he's all around you. And your life is in it. Thank you for listening to all or a portion of this full-length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street, 43605. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419-469-8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and how to give. You may you can mail uh, information to the church at the address 255 Hefner 43605. You can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting G-I-V-E G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095 If you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry you may text I-N-F-O to that same phone number 419-419-0095 If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, the word partner, 2419-419-0095.